Husky fans. This is Max Cerullo, and you are listening to Yes, UConn, the podcast where we dive deep into the greatest UConn basketball games ever played. And uh, today we're taking it all the way back to the beginning, to where I think most people would agree is really when UConn basketball's modern era really began. Uh, we're going to talk about the shot, when uh, Tate George beat Clemson at the buzzer in the 1990 Sweet 16. And uh, joining me today is Dom Amore from the Hartford Current. He's the uh, UConn men's basketball beat writer, and he's been following UConn sports for many years. Uh, so, yeah, so Dom, you know, wanted to talk to you about this game because this season is really where UConn basketball as we know it today was born. You know, this was Jim Calhoun's fourth season. They're two years removed from that NIT title, and uh, things were just starting to pick up steam. So, yeah, so what was the vibe around UConn basketball at this point, uh, you know, heading into this game? Well, I think you, you have to, to go back a couple of years uh, to when Calhoun took over. And if you remember, well, you don't remember probably because you're too young, but right on the heels of, you know, Jim got hired right on the heels of uh, Villanova beating Georgetown for the championship uh, in 85. And the Big East really at its peak with three teams in the, in the final four happening is that so many of those teams in the Big East had feasted on Connecticut talent. Uh, Harold Presley and, and Harold uh, uh, Jensen and John Pannone had gone to Villanova and Charles Smith had gone to Pittsburgh uh, and, and the list kind of goes on and on. And so the first thing that I know Jim Calhoun really wanted to do was stop the flow of Connecticut talent going into the other to, especially in the Big East Conference. So the first really, you know, some of those early recruits, that that dream team or dream season team, had a lot of Connecticut talent on it. Chris Smith, obviously from Bridgeport, and Murray Williams from uh, uh, Torrington played in that era. And, of course, Scott Burrell from Hampton. And Scott was just a must-get, and Jim, of course, got him. So that was kind of the context, and that, that fed into the NIT title which uh, really, it's hard to describe today, Mac, how big that was, uh, because the NIT was still a very, very important, prestigious tournament. It wasn't as prestigious as it was in the 40s and 50s, but still had quite a lot of, of juice to it. Uh, that was kind of a, a precursor to what would come later. And the next year, when UConn didn't make the tournament, but went back to the NIT, it was, it was a disappointment. So going into that, Jim's fourth season, you know, UConn was picked last in the Big East, and there weren't a lot of people really convinced that the program had turned a corner, and they got off to a rough start, but then they started to, to win games, all of a sudden they, they knock off St. John's, Syracuse, uh, Georgetown, almost in succession, and right with that, Gamble Pavilion opens uh, to an absolutely packed and screaming house and they beat Georgetown on a snowy night. The place is absolutely filled to the gills. And that, that's when, really, the, for the first time, you saw UConn basketball character that, that we would see. So it just began to build. And when UConn started winning that year in January, they had a certain way about it. They had this pressure defense. They were trapping everybody at midcourt. And they would just deliver these these early 16, 18 nothing runs game after game after game. And they were winning. They were beating even good teams easily. 
and that's what they did in the NCAA tournament. Uh, each game, and they they hosted the first two games at the uh, at the at the uh, Civic Center, now the XL Center. So, uh, really, that's kind of where they were. And then all of a sudden, that pressure stopped working, and the the, the running stopped working, and that nineteen point lead disappeared. And that's yeah, yeah. No, it's funny. So, me looking back, I know that game mostly for the shot. I never realized that they had that big a lead. And uh, when I was rewatching the game, it definitely struck me. I was like, wait a minute. They're up by 19 points with 12 minutes left. How do they wind up down again? And then I saw the score. I'm like, oh, my God, they hardly score a basket the rest of the way. So that was a little bit surprising, uh, to say the least. But it was this team was so much fun. Like just watching them. You're right. The the pressure defense really stood out to me. The, The team is so young too. like Tate George is the only senior. And most of the real impact guys were, you know, the sorts of Connecticut guys you were talking about, like Chris Smith and, you know, those those guys. Um yeah, just it was such a cool thing. It must have just been unbelievable to watch unfold in person. Yeah, well, once you know, once they they got into that game, and I've talked to Scott Burrell many times about it, and uh, and he coaches at my alma mater now, Southern Connecticut. And Scott has often said that really the big thing when they got into the huddle, they were all they were all you know kind of pissed off about blowing that big lead, you know, uh, and they were they were more pissed off about that and how do we how do we rescue this game. You know, now a point behind. That sets the stage for, you know, again the big play. And you know, Scott Burrell, um, I, I covered him as a as a pitcher in high school in American Legion. And of course, he was a first round draft pick of the Blue Jays, and he pitched for a while in the minor leagues for them. And we know what a great basketball prospect and player he was. But he was also a quarterback in on the football team, and uh, was a very Highly sought after Division One quarterback uh, in in uh, on the recruiting trail, and I believe Clemson offered him a football scholarship to go and be their their quarterback. So when he made that pass to to Tate George, a lot of people talk of it as a baseball pass, and but it's really a football pass. And his background as a quarterback that you saw there is a is a perfect spiral. That's unbelievable. That's so funny too that it was Clemson, especially. So like you know. Uh, Tate George had to out jump a couple of big guys to get that pass, but like it was perfectly placed, pretty much only where he could only get it. So, I mean, yeah, right. that that's that's such it's a cool like a way to look at it. Like a quarterback throwing to the corner of the end zone, where you're right, the only guy who could get it would it was his receiver, and that's exactly what that's exactly what Scott Burrell thought, and that's exactly what he executed. So these tournament games it struck me that many of the ones that UConn has had lately, especially and by lately, I mean, dating back even as far as 99, they tend to always travel far away. But in this case, they host, like you said, they host the two games at the XL Center or the, what, the, the Civic Center at that time. And then their regional finals are just in East Rutherford. Uh, UConn fans must have packed those gy- those gyms for those games, yeah. all of them. Yeah, they, they absolutely did. And in those days... Well, first of all, I think there was a little, they paid a little bit more attention to to you know regional, uh, and they didn't want to send they didn't they wouldn't want to normally want to give a team that kind of advantage unless they earned it. So uh, they earned that number one seed in the East uh, by dominating the Big East and, and the way they did in the Big East tournament. They earned that number one seed in the East, and and they got the opportunity to play at the XLs at the Civic Center, the XL Center. And in the Meadowlands, so yeah, that, that 
it, they, they were given a big home advantage. But in those days, when you had the kind of season that they did, you got that kind of advantage. Nice. Yeah. I mean, I'm honestly kind of jealous. Like it would have the next time you have something like that happen or actually, you know, to be fair in 2014, something like that kind of did happen when you had the regional at Madison square garden, but UConn was a seven seed and it just, it just worked out that way. This time you're the one seed and you know, you really just kind of get the, the best case scenario. So, um, yeah, so kind of leading into the Clemson game. So UConn, like we said, they were the number one seed in the regional. They start with a number 16 seed Boston university and they blow them out easily by 24 points. Then you've got number nine seed California. They win by twenty points there, seventy four to seven uh, fifty seven. Excuse, excuse me, seventy four to fifty four, and then uh, that sets up the match with number five seeded Clemson. This Clemson team was uh, was pretty good. Uh, they were um, twenty five and eight going in, and they had two future NBA forwards on their roster. Uh, these two six eleven guys, Zeldon Campbell and uh, Dale Davis. Uh, who were both, they, they both showed up. And then the rest of the team, you have a, like five other guys who averaged between six and eight points per game. So that's, you know, so pretty solid depth too. Um, I, I can't tell, I can't claim to be any kind of expert on a 1990 Clemson beyond what I saw today. So what do you remember about this team and sort of kind of what their well, whole deal was? I heard exactly what you said. Eldon Campbell was the guy everybody was talking about going into that. You know, he was the threat, the guy UConn had to neutralize. Um, and, you know, they had a way that team of, Having guys, in fact, most of, of Jim's teams in that era, they had uh, defensive players who could go in and literally lock in on the other team's star and shut him down. One of those guys was Lyman DePriest, who would, played a huge role in the NIT season. When UConn played in the semifinals in the NIT in 88, Dana Barros with Boston College was killing him in the first half. And Jim put uh, Lyman DePriest on him. And in the second half of that game, Barros only got one shot off in the whole second half. And, and that was the key to UConn coming from behind to win that game. So I think in, the, in, this, in this game here, he, he switched up his defense. And he, you know, he still had DePriest, uh, you know, shut down the guys who were killing him. And that's, that's basically what they did. But, you know, Campbell, and they, they got, Campbell got loose when they, when they made that big run back. Yeah, he and Davis. Davis was a problem, especially. he and they, they both end up finishing with 15 points, and then Davis winds up with something like 17 rebounds or something crazy like that. Um, yeah, so uh, I should probably ask, ask up front, where where were you when this game happened? Were you there? Were you watching at home? What was, what was your story? Well, I'll tell you what happened. Um, in those days, I was covering high schools uh, for the current. I was a you know, cub reporter, and uh, we had vastly expanded our high school desk so we had a whole bunch of us there and we were in the office and i was watching the game with a number of our high school writers and a number of our um uh, of our copy editors and we of course were watching it and like we're in kind of stunned disbelief when the 19 point lead went away glenn jordan who now writes uh for the portland press herald in maine blurted out it's late it's tate it's fate. And they loved it. And they used that as the headline. And then during the course of the night, news side people liked it, but they didn't like fate. So they stole the headline from the sports page. And the, the, the front page of the paper was, it's late, it's Tate, it's great. Uh, sports had to come up with a different headline. Uh, and of course, that became 
a very famous headline in, in current history. We sold T-shirts and everything else. Glenn didn't get any royalties on it, and uh, but he he had. Uh, I was always amazed that we just kind of built this this you know this this cult following off off coming up with this headline of his head when Tate at the shot. It's late. It's Tate. It's fate. Became it's late. It's Tate. It's great. And you know, finally, you know, uh, twenty four years later, when I was um, I was covering the Yankees when UConn won the 04 title and the women were going to play the next night. And I called up the office and I said, I got your headline, one crown, one to go. And they loved that. And then that became a t-shirt for us, which I never got any royalties for, but, but, um, that, that was, that's where we were. We were in the office watching the game. And when Tate George hit the shot, Glenn Jordan blurted out this line that, 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 that is still talked about at the current all these years later. That's awesome. Yeah. What was it like when the, actually the shot went in? Because like I'm, I've had a chance. Obviously, I, I grew up in Boston, so I've had my fair share of pretty awesome, you know, unexpected sports moments. So like that shot goes in. I mean, you guys must have been going crazy, right? Yeah. I mean, obviously, you probably could have heard a scream everywhere in Connecticut from a bar or a college dorm or a, an apartment or anywhere where young people gathered to watch that game. Uh, a, a roar went up. You, you probably could have heard anywhere you anywhere you were in Connecticut. It was, it was, you know, the, the NIT touched off a huge celebration in Connecticut, but there was no time to celebrate because you knew what was next. You knew Duke was next. And so everybody was like, okay, a sigh of relief. You know, we almost blew it, but we got it. And now it's on to Duke. Right. And obviously, I mean, we don't need to talk about the Duke game for very long, but that game in a weird way, it was it's like a classic in and of itself, except with almost the opposite ending. You find yourself on the other end of a dagger from Christian Leitner. So, I mean, that must have been really tough. But considering everything that followed like over the rest of the 90s, I mean, it must have still been a pretty, you know, pretty satisfying season, even if the ending wasn't ultimately what people wanted. Yeah, I can still remember Jim uh, talking about the, when uh, Tate George very nearly stole the ball, uh, which would have clinched that game against Duke. And you know, said, I thought I thought Tate, Tate was going to dribble all the way to Denver. And no one doubted that they would be back. Uh, no one doubted any longer that Jim Calhoun was a great coach. No one doubted any longer that uh, UConn could be uh, a Big East power and a national power. But I think what happened with that team and, you know, we haven't talked about Dove Hennefeld, but obviously he played a big role in that that year, that season. He left right afterward. But, you know, with that team, it really raised the bar uh, for UConn in that it was going to be Final Four or bust. It was going to end any season subsequently. If they couldn't climb that next rung and get to the Final Four, it was going to be a disappointment. And you think about all the great players that UConn had in the 90s, from Ray Allen to Danielle Marshall and all the others, Kevin Ollie, they were, you know, Duran Sheffer, but they were not able to make that breakthrough to the Final Four. Year after year, they got close. They got to the 16. They got to the Final Eight. They would be upset by teams that that you wouldn't expect. So that, that dream season set the bar very high, and it took nine years for UConn to clear it. And those nine years, while tremendously successful, were often considered disappointments, even though UConn might be 32 and three or 31 and four in some of those years. That that season really raised the expectations that okay, when when is UConn's turn to go to the Final Four going to come? And of course, it took nine nine years for that to happen. 
Yeah. So um, let's talk about the game itself. Uh, so the first half was pretty much what you would have expected, I think. So, you know, UConn goes up at 38 to 29 at halftime and, you know, the first like five or six minutes of the game are almost unwatchable. There's like just uh, missed shots everywhere, turnovers everywhere, you know, just pretty ugly basketball. And then eventually, it's like you said, UConn kind of got that big run. It was, a, uh, I, I think, the the biggest one they had, the 14 to 3, which put them ahead by 10. And then kind of just, you know, a little back and forth, but UConn more or less maintains that lead. But what struck me was Clemson has 16 turnovers in the first half. Like that was pretty, pretty shocking. So, you know, as what do you remember about the first half and just sort of the way it all began? Well, it just it, uh, you, you said Clemson had 16 turnovers, right? That's correct, yes. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's what that UConn team did to people. You can't do that every year. You don't always have the team to do that. Sometimes you don't have a team when you need to do that. But that team needed, you know, you often hear uh, phrases like, you know, with Arkansas at that time, 40 minutes of hell. And you hear that a lot, a lot of teams. But that, that was probably the closest for the, from about January 10th to the end of the year to really making it 40 minutes of hell on everybody. And in that game, uh, the first half, the first 30 minutes were hell on Clemson. They could not, they couldn't handle the ball against UConn's constant, steady pressure. And there were a bunch of them guys coming off the bench, bringing more pressure, uh, always fresh people coming in and out. That season's kind of Jim Calhoun's coaching masterpiece because he really didn't take uh, a lot of McDonald's All-Americans or highly touted prospects. As I mentioned, a lot of the kids were from Connecticut. But, man, he got the most out of them, and it was because they bought into what he wanted to do defensively. And that's they when, when, when they got going like that, Mac, it didn't matter who was on the other side of the floor. Uh, Clemson, a very, very good ACC team, was just as vulnerable as Boston University to that kind of pressure. So that's that's what happened. And I think at some point, being a much better team than those others, Clemson started to handle the pressure and couldn't keep it up. And that's what happened later on. But those first 30 minutes of the game, as I remember it, just pure hell for, for Clemson. Couldn't handle the ball. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, so whatever adjustments they made or just straight up just whatever they had to do to survive, it definitely did pay off down the stretch. Um, So, yeah, so the first, like, 10 minutes of the second half, they... they, Clemson stops turning the ball over for the most part, but UConn just kind of keeps them at arm's length, and they start to stretch the lead. Uh, Chris Smith hits a couple of threes, hits a couple of baskets. He he's up to twenty-one points before you know it, and then there's that point where Dale Davis, uh, you know, the the future NBA guy, he gets called for a technical. You know, Chris Smith knocks down two free throws, and it's a uh, fifty-eight to forty. You know, uh, Burrell hits one more free throw that gives him the nineteen-point lead, and I just like. It really was striking to me just rewatching this game and just knowing how it ends. And I'm like, oh my god, what on earth is about to happen? Did you guys have any? Did you guys have any inkling that it was even possible that Clemson could come back into the game at this point? Well, you know what? I think maybe, maybe, and you know, Jim Calhoun would probably smack me for saying this, but maybe for the first time, UConn had gotten to a point where they got complacent. Maybe for the first time, UConn thought that they had it made after so many years and so much uh, time of being an underdog. Uh, 
Uh, and I think probably UConn just took their foot off the off the gas, maybe feeling like, okay, this is done. Let's just work, run out the clock. And, and uh, I think probably UConn just put their foot on. You, you see it in basketball all the time, Mac, when a team takes its foot off the gas pedal, it's hard to get it back on. It's hard to get the, the speed back up. And I think what happened with them is that once Clemson, you know, cut it to nine or eight or nine points, UConn just could not regain momentum. And I think they maybe started to panic a little bit. Yeah. Well, it's, the numbers are pretty striking. So so at that moment when it's uh, 59 to 40, so for the next, uh, whatever it would be, 12 minutes plus, UConn, Clemson outscores UConn 30 to 10, which is not good. But even then, like UConn doesn't really start to let it slip away until the last six minutes or so. So you know UConn's still up by sixteen at the under eight. They're up by sixty-seven to fifty-three with just under six minutes left. And I mean sixty, they they finish with seventy-one points. So that means basically Clemson outscores them seventeen to two over the last six minutes of the game, except for you know Tate George's shot. And during that stretch, the only points that UConn scored were Tate George hit a pair of free throws. So they don't hit a single basket until that miracle. It's honestly astounding, like the way it went down. You know, the, the run kind of starts. UConn has uh, four, I think, yeah, four turnovers in a row. You know, Clemson scores baskets on all of them. And then, you know, just like that, now it's a four, now it's like a two-point game. And it's, uh, you know, there you go. So, you know, that when when that starts to happen, I mean, you know, C- Coach Calhoun must have been pulling his hair out. Like, just like, what, what on earth is going on here? Yeah, I, I, he was, of course. And he was, you know, younger and much more intense. Um, but, you know, <clears throat> if you watched him, through the years, you know that when the going would like when a game would, would play out like that, and you would think he would he would uh, you know throw a fit and tear out his hair. That's when he was at his best. That's when he was calm. That's when he I think he kind of projected. Uh, I don't know what he said in in the in the huddles. I don't know what he was yelling at his assistants or yelling at the bench as things were were falling apart there. But uh, my sense is that he he gave the team a sense of, you know, we, we got this. We're still ahead. We got this. And, and even at the end, we have one more shot. So, uh, you know, usually at those times, he's kind of at his best when he stopped the bleeding. And at the very last second, you can't stop the bleeding. Yeah, I mean, quite literally the very last second. So, yeah, so just, uh, just to set up the shot, so... Basically, when UConn is up 69 to 67 with about two minutes left, and that's sort of when kind of the end game starts. So you have um, uh, Clemson misses a three, and uh, Dale Davis gets a putback. So that that's what makes it a two point game. UConn calls timeout. Nadav Hennefeld misses a three, and then uh, George, then Tate George, who made all kinds of great plays in the, the at the end, he hit the free throws to kind of keep the keep the lead by a little bit more he blocks a Clemson three out of bounds he has a couple of good defensive plays but then uh with uh 11 seconds left David Young from Clemson hits a three and that gives him the lead finally with 11.3 seconds left and then on the next play you know UConn gets a shot uh I I I think um yeah so Tate George misses the jumper and you know Clemson gets the rebound, draws a foul with 1.6 seconds left. I mean, it should be over. Like whenever this happens, like there's no chance. So I mean, that must have that must have been just so frustrating if you're a UConn fan at that point. Well, I, I think the arena was pretty silent. 
Uh, obviously, a lot of UConn fans in the arena. Probably a lot of Duke fans, too. It, it had gotten silent. I mean, you can imagine how silent it got. You know, I've been... You know, I've been at Yankee Stadium when the Red Sox came from 3-0 and 4 and I remember how eerily silent the stadium was that night as uh, as the as the, uh, the 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 game was was running out, and it was it was probably very much like that. UConn, a nation, had kind of fallen silent, uh, looking for that one play that could allow them to, which they, of course they got. Yeah, so they got their kind of they they got some life when Sean Tyson misses the front end of the one and one, and uh, you know UConn smartly still has a timeout. They call it, and uh, that sort of is what sets up the you know the big final play. So you know we we already touched on it a little bit, but basically if you ha- somehow have not seen this shot already, uh, so um, Burrell chucks an inbound pass the length of the court to Tate George. And he just catches it in traffic, spins around, and he knocks down a 15-foot jumper for the win. And, I mean, yeah, it's honestly one of the craziest shots in college basketball history, frankly. I mean, we've seen a couple of similar shots. Uh, I mean, actually, Duke had their own similar shot a couple years later against Kentucky in the Elite Eight. You know, and, you know, we've, we've had a handful of others kind of along those lines, too, since. But, I mean, man, like... It's just an un, just the, the chances of him making that shot are it's like it's so small like it's crazy that it happened. So just a... the, the, the thing about that shot that separates it from a lot of others, and if you think of you know Jalen Adams three quarter court heave against Cincinnati, I mean that that's pure luck. We know that, right? That's just that's pure luck. And this shot by Tate George, there was certainly luck involved, but it wasn't pure luck. Because the pass, as we mentioned, was absolutely perfect. And he turned around with great form and technique. And he did get the shot off. There's no question about that. The ball's in the air when you see the light go on, uh, the, the buzzer sounds. Uh, so even though, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was certainly a high degree of difficulty shot. And certainly there's a lot of luck involved. But between the pass and the catch, and the turnaround, and the release. Uh, he did everything possible to give himself the best chance to go in. So, yeah, there was maybe some luck, but not pure luck. There was an awful lot of skill involved in that. It was smooth. I mean, you know, it wasn't like, I mean, the Clemson guys weren't contesting it as hard as they could have, because I'm sure they are probably a little bit sh- sh- uh, shocked, maybe also trying not to foul. But I mean, you know, it was by no means a gimme, and uh, you know, from not the easiest spot on the court either. Um, yes, yeah, so, I mean, just so yeah, he hits the shot. It's uh, seventy-one to seventy final, and just like, do you think that this shot is uh, appreciated enough by UConn fans? Because like, I, I feel like this shot is is without question a top three shot in UConn history. There's no question about that. You know, it's just the nature of college basketball. It's a young fan. It's always a young fan base. Uh, it's always, you know, the college kids that are, are so emotionally invested in what the program does that year, you know, college uh, students and recent graduates. And that year was no different. And I think that, um, you know, but as, as time goes on, you know, the UConn fans today in their 20s, you know, we're not even born yet, have no recollection of that. Uh, a lot of you, it, it, it's just the nature of, of, of college basketball it's kind of footprints on the sands of time they they fade uh but certainly for people uconn fans and students of that era certainly uh it would 
would put it number one in, in UConn history. It's it's way up there, and it, it really it really was a shot that um, this day you're never going to watch an NCAA tournament highlight package or anything that tries to portray what March Madness is without seeing that shot. Yeah, and that's well deserved too. I mean, it's there's like four or five go to shots from that era. You know, there's um you know the, the Leitner ones we've talked about. There's a handful of other you know, the Valparaiso shots. Another, you know, just you know, whenever there's a go to like you know late '80s, early '90s legendary moment to kind of uh, you know sum up the epicness of March Madness, it, it belongs on that list, and it's usually there. Yeah, so, and, and of course, you're never gonna forget the image of of Jim Calhoun. Jumping up and down, jumping up and down, jumping up and down, and then in a in a nanosecond, immediately changing to a very solid and shaking Cliff Ellis's hand. He's got that move down pat. He's done that a bunch of times, and it's never not hilarious. But that was the first time you, you saw it, and it was uh, it was it was spectacular. You know, uh, many Connecticut writers, including myself, have written uh, about that that game ten years later, twenty years later, twenty five years later. And, you know, Cliff Ellis, coach who now is uh, still coaching, uh, God bless him, at uh, College of Charleston, will not do an interview about that game. We'll not talk about that game. Oh, no. Never, yeah. Never, never, never quite got over that loss. It's, uh, yeah, well, to be honest, I don't blame him. I mean, his team deserved to win. I mean, like, let's be real. Like, they, they just pulled off an epic comeback, and then UConn just stole it away. I mean, it rem- almost reminded me of that um, that famous, uh, I think it was, what, a Texas like high school football game where what, that team made like some crazy 40-point comeback, and then the other team just scored a touchdown, and the guys just like, the announcers just start crying. They're like, this is so, this is so sad. It, was, it must have been like that for the Clemson fans. Yeah, it must have been, but you know what? They also got behind, they also fell behind by 19, uh, and that's... That's that's basketball. You know, it's it's a it's a game of runs. It's a game of spurts. You know, when you when you fall behind nineteen, absolutely everything has to go right for you to win. If you're nineteen down with six minutes to go, and for Clemson, ninety nine things went right, and the one last thing went wrong, and that's that's what happens when you're trying to win a game from far behind. So yeah, so I guess just kind of looking back, so uh, rewatching the game, a couple of things stood out to me, just kind of big picture wise. I was amazed by how many mid-range jump shots those teams were taking. And specifically, like a guy would catch the ball behind the three-point arc and he would take a step forward and he would shoot a t- like a deep two. That's not, not something that you ever see anymore. And it happened all the time. So I mean, you know, you basketball is different now. But just thinking back, like, what do you, what do you what do you make of these old games? Whenever you do happen to catch them, and just just how how much the game has evolved since then. Yeah, well, you know, the three pointer was still relatively new in college basketball at that time. You know, uh, um, you know, Phil Gamble made the first three uh, in UConn history, and Steve Peichel, who was on that team, uh, the Dream Season team. Uh, was also UConn's first great three-point shooter uh, when the three-pointer came in. And I think the, the, the old the philosophy of trying to get as open as you can, as close as you can, was still in everybody's mind. And so you would see guys step forward and take a, you know, a 17-foot two instead of a... You would see that. Because I think people still weren't quite... In, it wasn't quite ingrained in thinking that hey, you've got to take threes unless, you know, it was the end of the game and you needed a three or a two didn't do you any good. So I think everybody still had the mentality 
try to take the highest percentage shot they could, and that meant the closest. And, you know, the philosophy that you see today, 33% on threes is the same as 50% on twos. So take threes. Don't take tough twos. Everything's either a dunk or a layup. That makes perfect sense. But that had not, that kind of thinking had not yet become part of the basketball culture at that time. And that's, that's what you're seeing there when you watch that game. Guys are really still playing like there isn't a three-point line, even though there is. Yeah, well, one player who definitely looks like a modern basketball player is Chris Smith. So, you know, he has this reputation as like UConn's, you know, one of UConn's most important recruits. You know, he was this great, he's to this day is still the program's all-time leading scorer. And uh, I never really gotten to see him play before. And I have to say, I was very impressed. He, you know, he's efficient. In this game, he scores 23 points and he is eight for 14 shooting. He's four for eight from three. You know, he's making some good defensive plays, some nice passes. He he was great. And um, yeah. yeah, just, you know, I... I it's I, I now honestly I want to go back and watch some more of his games because he's a fun player to watch and you know definitely a guy that you know if, if he's just a name on the, like the record book to you you know it's like wow this guy must have been good but yeah. you know to actually see yeah. him play he was he was tremendous. Yeah, still comes to a lot of games. Um, you know, you look, he obviously was a great high school player at Kobe Cathedral in Bridgeport, and uh, you know again that was a big it was a big get for UConn because Syracuse was after him. You know, Syracuse wanted him. And, you know, if he had gone, it would have been another great player leaving Connecticut. And, you know, UConn really, I mean, Connecticut really produced a lot of great Division One talent in those days, the guys we mentioned. You know, he that's why he was such a, a big, big get for UConn when Jim was able to convince him to, to, to stay home, stay in Connecticut, forego Syracuse and go to UConn, it made UConn like the cool place to go. It, it, it showed other recruits that UConn was a cool place to go. And that, that was really, um, you know, kind of what, what helped to lead to, you know, Murray Williams was uh, kind of a forerunner of that. And that, that helped lead to Chris Smith and Scott Burrell coming here. You know, if Scott Burrell had gone somewhere else, that would have been an absolute disaster for UConn too. So that was another another big get. Shortly after that season, became such a, a, a national program that very few UConn players ever, very few Connecticut players uh, rose to that level, were good enough to play for UConn you know, ever again. But the combination of uh, Connecticut producing a lot of great talent in the late 1980s and, and the need for UConn, it was a very fortunate confluence that led Chris Smith to UConn. And yeah, you're right. He was really a terrific player, probably not as appreciated today because he probably wasn't as flashy as you might, as maybe some other guys were, uh, but a very, very good player, very solid player. And he had a, and he had a bit of an NBA career too. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, maybe he wasn't flashy, but I mean, he, his career holds up like, you know, the things that people value today in basketball are all things that he was good at even back then. So you know, he's, I guess you'd say definitely somebody who's aged quite well. Uh, Scott Burrell was another one I was very impressed by. I, I've seen a little bit of him, you know, over the years, just, you know, watching games in my free time. Uh, in this game, he's terrific as well. Uh, you know, besides the pass, he has uh, 15 rebounds, including six offensive rebounds. And uh, he's doing it against uh, two future NBA forwards who are both almost seven feet tall. Um, you know, the guy was obviously a tremendous athlete, but, um, 
Yeah, it's just it was cool to see him too. And, and, and he's still, I believe he's still the, the career leader in steals for UConn. I mean, he's one of the best ball hawk, ball stealers in uh, in the history of the program. So he, yeah, he, he, yeah, he just he was a freakish athlete, um, and and yeah, he he played great in that game, and that was really only the beginning. He had he had a great great career at UConn. He probably had the most notable NBA career of anybody on the court that night. Yeah, I think that that's probably fair to say. Right, an NBA champion with the Bulls and had a long career in the league. Yeah. Um, so this team, just maybe it's just a product of the uh, press defense that they use, but Nadav Hennefeld was also a great steal guy. I think I think I heard on the broadcast that he had the uh, school record or the conference record or the national record. He had some record for most steals by a freshman. So, I mean, between those two guys and all the others, I mean, yeah, there was a, there was that, that yeah. defense must have been something to see. Yeah, we haven't talked enough about him uh, when you talk about that season and even that game. But you know, here's a guy that um, you know kind of fell out of the out of out of the sky, kind of came out of left field nowhere, and somebody called Jim Calhoun and said, "Hey, I got somebody for you." And hey, I'll take a look at him. And as it turned out, you know, Nadav came over from from Israel to, to the United States, and the only schools that he really had heard about were St. John's and UConn. St. John's, uh, you know, he, the urban ca- campus wasn't what he wanted. He didn't want to be in a, in a campus in that setting. He wanted more of a rural, uh, you know, uh, agrarian look to where he went to school. You know, he was like a professional. I mean, he had the demeanor and the skills and the, the, the IQ of a professional. And he really changed the, the whole complexion of that team. Uh, it was like having a, a, it was like having a, a pro veteran free agent join your, your team because that he had that type of, of way about him and he, he made a huge difference. I think most, most of the guys who played with him, even though it was only that one year, uh, never forgot it. And a lot of the guys who played against him uh, didn't know what hit him because they didn't, they never played against this type of professional uh, with the European basketball skill set before. Yeah, so this particular game wasn't his best, um, but big picture, yeah, he he was just a, a, a he was outstanding for them. Yeah, in this one, he ran into foul trouble mostly. He had four by like midway through the second half. He only finishes with two points, but still has three assists and three rebounds. And yeah, just and the defense is just uh, you know, he was he was a different guy for sure. And uh, I'm sure just combined with him and the other underclassmen who were all coming in around that time. I mean, it was just a. UConn had never seen anything like it, I'm sure. Because um, I mean, I don't, I don't really, I can't say that like from personal experience, but just, just that's the impression I've always been given. Yeah, and, and, and they really haven't seen many players like that since. Um, but yeah, he he was he, he was obviously immense in the Big East tournament. Uh, those those are where he hit some of his big shots, as I recall. Uh, and you know that the team also had a knack for guys coming off the end of the bench. And being able to do thing that had to be done to win that game. And, you know, Terreno Walker was a big man who was kind of, uh, didn't really have much of a role. But out of nowhere, he's on the court in the Big East tournament and he's shutting down uh, Derek Coleman, who was the Big East player of the year. So uh, they just kept coming up with guys off the bench or from somewhere <laughs> that could come and play a role that was effective in that team. And in addition 
to having a lot of talent, uh, it was also a team that played very, very well together, as evidenced by those knock, knockout runs that were fueled by defense that we've talked about. Yeah, UConn, a couple of those guys you mentioned had some uh, solid performances off the bench. Uh, John Gwynn has nine points uh, in 17 minutes. Lyman DePriest, he plays 17 minutes and gets eight points. And I, I re- distinctly remember him making a whole bunch of really nice plays down the stretch. He was actually probably UConn's best player other than Tate George during that stretch where they're not playing very well. So he was kind of giving him a chance when, with his minutes. I don't know, that's sort of as far as the team, like what else about this team that just do you remember before we kind of move on to the next segment? You just remember it as a time when UConn was still on the climb. They were still coming up. And the fans really reveled and appreciated those wins. They were beating teams that they never beat before. Uh, and it was just, it was just a, a fun era. You know, a lot of the angst or the anger that, you know, sometimes is associated with high-powered basketball programs as UConn is today you didn't have that then. It was it was really kind of a pure joy. After that season there, as I mentioned, there was more the pressure and the expectation to do it one better. Yeah, no, absolutely. So um broadcast beefs. Every um every episode I like to kind of comment on the broadcast and uh, one I have to say two things about this broadcast. Uh, Dick Stockton and Hubie Brown were the announcers and they were terrific. Um, as far as everything they did, it was good. I could not get over the fact that the score and the time was not on the screen like it like it is today. It was very, very annoying, and I don't know how you guys used to watch basketball back in the old days when it wasn't like the way it is today in that respect. Yeah, you know what? All of those things changed in or probably five or six years after that, and you started to see the constant graphics. You know, in those days, the philosophy was not to clutter the screen. You know, a lot of graphics that were on there all the time. So it was just a question of they would flash graphics occasionally. Um, but what the, 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 more, the more familiar look that you're talking about, we're probably about six, seven years away from that. Uh, I remember I was actually the media columnist for The Current in the mid-90s, late-90s, and I wrote a lot about those uh, innovations because you just didn't see that. You know, when NFL came up with the yellow uh, line for the first downs, you know, or the red zone line, uh, that that was considered like sacrilege. You know, you're doctoring the, the picture of the field. But now it's like you can't watch a football game without it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think your time, the timing is sounds about right, too. So I was uh, I was born a couple months after this game was played. So the first games that I remember were like, you know, basically the end of Michael Jordan's career with the Bulls. So like the second three Pete. And I remember that they had the graphics on, you know, more or less like they do today during those times. They had that for the Super Bowl, the Patriots versus the Packers and, you know, everything on from that point on. So, yeah, just uh, rewatching this game was just like, oh, geez, I have to really like pay attention to the action here. I can't really rely on that like I'm used to. Anyway, so the, the last segment I usually do is uh, who won the game. And this one, uh, you know, the top dog of this game is pretty obviously Tate George. Tate George is an interesting story. So obviously we know all about this game. We know he has uh, the, the, the big shot at the end. He finishes with 12 points and four assists and, um, you know, goes on to have a, a brief career in the NBA. He gets drafted in the first round, plays for the, I think it wound up being four years with the New Jersey Nets and the Milwaukee Bucks. His story is obviously, unfortunately, taken an un, un, unpleasant turn. He's currently in, imprisoned for, 
you know, uh, after being found guilty of running a Ponzi scheme. So, I mean, right. what do let's what are your thoughts on Tate George and obviously the good in this game and you know the not so good yeah. that came later. Well, you know, I remember um, writing about him and his relationship with um, the young man who was who was deaf, uh, who is now, by the way, a, a, an accomplished quarterback coach in Bloomfield. Uh, but Tate had had this great, had this you know, wonderful relationship with him as uh, as a young man, uh, as he as a kid. Uh, Tate was a very charming. He had a, a very outgoing personality, a uh, great smile. Uh, he, he really was a likable guy. And, you know, I guess as time went on and he got older, uh, that likability, you know, became a bit of a con game. And obviously he got himself into trouble and, you know, he's, uh, you know, he was ultimately convicted of, of the Ponzi scheme that, that he uh, was involved with. But it's one of those things where you just, you know, you... You shake your head because uh, he really, you know, he was a great basketball player. He had a great career. He had this great moment that you could kind of hang your hat on forever. Uh, he made a lot of money in the NBA. And he was a, a charming, likable guy. Very easy to like, uh, very hard to dislike. You know, that's, that, that, but that's the thing that strikes me. Like, you know, a lot of people like that. You think... Gee, what a, you know? What a nice guy! What a what a what a charming guy! And what a likable guy! And that's that's what he was. He he, you know, he he always came off. He always always left a good impression on you when you talked to him. Yeah, no, I mean, that that feels about right. I mean, it's hard to be a con man if you're not at least kind of charming. So, I mean, it is unfortunate what happened. And you know, I guess so. He's supposed to be released sometime in the next couple of years. Uh, I, I was yeah. I couldn't quite nail that down, but you know, hopefully when he gets out, he can you know, try to, you know, do better with the rest of his life and, you know, move on. You know, interestingly, uh, a couple of years ago or a few years ago when it was the 25th anniversary, um, one of our, one of our reporters, Chris Keating and I sent uh, in prison, we were ready to go down to uh, where he's incarcerated and do an interview with him. And he sent, he sent us a response, you know, declining the interview. Uh, I wish I had it to, to read, but it was again. It was it was a very polite and cordial and 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 respectful and likable response to our request. He didn't grant the request, but again, it's, you know, you would think he might say, hey, "Go either ignore it altogether, or say, oh, go away. I'm not talking about that. Get lost.' Blah blah blah." But it was very very cordial and 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 polite response to, to, to our letter even even then that's so yeah you know you, you do you do hope that there's some good in him and that uh you know the people that he victimized of course would probably feel much differently but he's still a young enough guy he's got a lot of life left to, to live when he gets out no absolutely so um i guess uh, before we wrap this up do you have any other stories or you know things about this game that you uh want to share no just that um you know again I, he I teach at Southern Connecticut, and of course Scott uh, Burrell is the coach there, so I see him quite a bit. And we've done a lot of interviews. We've done some podcasts about this game, and um, you know, uh, you know, it's 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 just the serendipity of of sports that here was a guy who was a baseball, football, basketball star in the absolute right place at the absolute right time to make the absolute right play. Uh, and, 
and 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 that's how it happened. You know, it's 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 an amazing series of events that you know put Scott Burrell, who uh, on the sideline on the uh, on the baseline at uh, Brendan Byrne Arena that in, in the Meadowlands and made that perfect perfect pass. Or he could have been in the NFL taking snaps, but uh, he had he's a guy with an incredible amount of skill, and he had almost like full of skills and he was able to reach into his toolbox and pull out that quarterback skill to make that play uh an incredible uh occurrence of the right guy in the right place at the right time absolutely dom thank you so much for taking the time this has been great so um what i guess uh, just to kind of wrap this up uh where can people find you online on social media anything you know anything you want to plug uh well, you know, my, my column obviously runs every Monday. It's uh, highlights Connecticut sports people uh, try to pick out uh, an interesting uh, person to profile and tell their story each week. Um, that runs every Monday on current.com. And, of course, all my work following UConn men's basketball in season and out appears on, on UConn, uh, appears on current.com. As well. You can follow me at, at Amore Current on Twitter as well you'll see my work there and you'll see my baseball work around in different places when it comes out uh baseball of course being my first love so uh you shouldn't have any problem finding my work it's out there awesome very good well everybody should go read dom's work because he's uh done great stuff he's been uh you know, been been killing it on the UConn beat for in the baseball beat for a long time and uh, i know you've written you've written at least one book too if i recall right yeah, I, yeah, uh, one uh, one book in uh, one, one book in English, uh, <laughs> which is called Franchise on the Rise. It's about the first twenty years of New York Yankees history. Uh, one book in Japanese only about uh, Hideki Matsui. So, uh, not even sure what that actually says. Just a lot of Japanese characters with my name on it. And you know, I thought about it recently. I wrote wrote a book that was published by the Current on the five ninety six women's team. Not the big team, the one that, the, not the undefeated team. The next year, uh, the follow-up year. So I did. Uh, I've really done three books, but one uh, it published in 2018, "Franchise on the Rise," uh, published by Skyhorse. That's the one that uh, you might want to look for if you're looking for something to read during this uh, coronavirus. Absolutely, and uh, the fact that you've written a book in Japanese is actually pretty amazing too. So <laughs> definitely, I wasn't expecting that. That's that's pretty awesome. And uh, yeah, so everyone, thanks for listening. Um, we drop new episodes every Tuesday, and uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, you can do so at Max Cerullo. That's M A C C E R U L L O. Uh, my DMs are open, so you can hit me up there. We also have a Gmail account, yesuconpodcast at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, leave those five-star reviews. They they help us out. They help us uh, show up higher in the search uh, you know, searches on the, uh, the podcast apps. And um, yeah, so anyway, uh, we'll be back next week. So uh, all of you guys have a good one.